Well, good morning, everyone. Morning, everyone who's watching at home, online, on TV. Great to have you here for our very first week of the series, God's Odds. Uh, if you had plans not to be at church next Sunday, um, you should change your plans. <laughs> and if uh, two Sundays from now you have like a cabin booked and a family vacation planned, you should probably cancel those plans. And if you were doing anything else for the next six Sundays besides being right here in church, besides watching at home, maybe I'm biased because I'm the pastor, but I think you should change those plans and be here week after week after week because we are about to read the most interesting, surprising, shocking, scandalous, beautiful, and possibly powerful parts of the entire Bible. It's called the book of Esther. I mean, where else in the Bible can you meet a drunk, powerful, chauvinist, sexist king who is surrounded by a drunk, powerful, chauvinist, sexist royal court who is so afraid of the first ever Persian Me Too movement that they kick out the queen and decide to throw the very first season of the Persian Bachelor that has much less dating and much more mating and is not suitable for children. How often do you meet a apparently very, very hot but not so holy Jewish orphan who becomes the queen and her eavesdropping stubborn uncle stands up to the prime minister which almost sparks an Old Testament Hitler to commit Jewish genocide in the 5th century BC but they overcome all the odds because of a brave heart-like battle that was so good and so unexpected that when I went to Israel the last time, 2,500 years later after the event, grown religious rabbis were hammered drunk in the streets to celebrate the fact that their people had survived. So where are you going to be next Sunday? (laughs) Man, what an interesting, some of you are thinking, that's in the Bible? I did not exaggerate any of that. That's exactly what we're about to find in the Bible. And here's what else we're about to find. We're about to find a book in the word of God that never once mentions the name God. I found this out. The titles God and Lord show up almost 10,000 times in the Bible, but in the book of Esther, not a single time. No one prays in the book of Esther. No one worships in the book of Esther. No one stands up for God in the book of Esther because God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. There's no walking on water, no feeding of the 5,000, no raising the dead, no miracles, no explicit evidence that God was even present in the middle of this mess. Which makes it a very, very interesting addition to the word of God, a whole book that never even mentions God. But here's why I think you're going to love it. Because I have a hunch that before you came to church today, you did not walk on water. No? Kids, am I wrong about that? <laughs> and the last time you were at Chick-fil-A, God did not turn your six-piece nugget into like a 5,000-piece <laughs> piece. I have a hunch, if you're anything like me, you've probably maybe never seen an outright, honest-to-God, parting of the skies miracle. It's like you go to school and you, you go to work Maybe you date someone, you clean up the yard, you fix up the stuff, you try to make a paycheck, you try to pay the bills, you try to stay sober. It's like natural life day after day after day. And if you've ever wondered, does that mean that God is gone? That God's forgotten about me? That God doesn't have great plans for me? The book of Esther is going to give this most powerful, powerful truth that even when he doesn't show up with thunder and lightning, even when you look around and wonder, is, is God even around here anymore? 
Is God even listening to my prayers? The book of Esther is going to prove to you that God does not need to whisper in your ear or thunder from the sky. That God can be in the middle of your most complicated, messy moments doing incredible things. Not because he shows up with a, with a bazooka and a fireworks show, but because he tiptoes in like a ninja and works out all things for your eternal good. That is why I want you to be here as we dive into this fascinating book, the book of Esther. Now, as we kick things off today with week number one, I want to ask you it's a really simple, honest question. The question is, as you look back on your life or think about the spot where you're in in life right now, have you ever felt, as you looked around, like it was kind of pointless? You ever had a, a chapter in your story where whether it was like the relationship that you were in or the class that you had to take for school or something you were dealing with with your health that you, you couldn't see some great reason for all of this happening. You didn't see God's explicit plan. There was nothing that was so inspiring that you jumped out of bed and said, yes, my life matters. But instead you looked around and thought, what's the point of this? Some of us feel that for the first time when we're forced to take that required class in high school or college. You know, the gen ed, and you think to yourself as you're studying late into the night, I am never in my entire life going to use this. <laughs> Memorize the periodic table. Who needs to know all 50 capitals? So you want to say to your teacher, that's what Google is for, right? But they make you memorize it. And you, so you study the facts of history and you're learning like one year of Spanish, even though you're never going to take Spanish. And you think to yourself, I'm, I'm pouring out all of this effort. I'm wasting all of this time, this is, this is pointless. Or maybe you felt that way when you had that job that wasn't exactly changing the world. And you're not feeding starving children. You're not bringing the gospel to new communities and cultures. You're like, you're grinding it out. It's, it's another overnight shift of nursing. It's another, another day changing tires. Just another day doing whatever you do and it's like just about the paycheck because there's no, there's no, per you don't like the people, you don't love your boss, you don't even come close to liking your job. What's the, what's the, God, what is the point of this? Or this happens to some people when they become new moms, right? And you're just exhausted. You had this, t you just wanted to get four things done on the list and maybe your husband comes home and he says, how was your day? And none of the boxes are checked and two new ones are added and you feel like, I didn't get anything done. Just running around, changing diapers, putting up. The kids are all alive. That's the only victory of today. And it just feels like you're stuck. But, you know, before the kids used to do so many things and used to make such a difference, used to volunteer, used to help people, used to have time for people. And now, or I've seen people at our church um, deal with this when they're in the long, painful process of a divorce. Right? It's like you, it's like this didn't work out. And you just want to start fresh and start new, but that's just not the way the system works. Right? And so this is long, just dragged out process. And you think, what, what is the point of this? Just needs to end and get over so I can actually do something that matters in life again. People sometimes feel this when they're sitting in a jail cell or stuck in a nursing home. You know, the judge gives you 18 months of a sentence or 24 years of a sentence or you're your husband passed seven years ago and you're just ready to get to heaven and you don't 
It's like you don't do anything. You just sit there in a cell and you, you sit there in your room and you watch TV and you hope the clock moves faster and you think, my, my life, it has no grand purpose or plan. In fact, this truth hits some people so hard that they wonder if it's even worth living. Like, I'm not helping anyone. I'm not doing it. Would anyone miss me if I was gone? That, that idea taking a class, grinding out a job, being in a relationship, having, having kids, being in a cell, being in a nursing home, we, we can sometimes feel that maybe those people have some great, some great purpose and difference they're making in life, but maybe that's not us. Maybe this needs to change. Maybe until I get there, I'm never going to do anything that really matters in the grand scheme of God's plans. Well, I want to tell you today, if you feel that right now, or if you felt that in the past, or if someday you're ever tempted to feel that, there's one just big, big idea I want you to take home with you today. And if you're watching at home or you're sitting here live, grab your pen, because here's the, the big idea we're going to learn from the book of Esther. Esther is going to teach us that you are put in place for a purpose. And I mean every word of that sentence. You. Not just him or her or them, or people with the different jobs or different stories. No, you, singular, you are put in place, meaning this place, this year, this day, this time, this country, this culture, that family, that job, you, you specifically are put in that specific place for a purpose. There is a plan. There is a reason for everything that God does. There's something great in God's mind that if you could just see it for a second, you would jump out of bed and say, this is the day that God has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. Today, my hope is to fill your heart with hope. To give you a reason to get up, a reason to live. I want to talk some of you off the edge of suicide and I want to put wind back in the sails of many others of you as I try to prove this point from the book of Esther that you are put in place for a purpose. We're actually going to learn that through two separate stories from two cousins who lived 2,500 years ago. Let's meet Esther and Mordecai from the book of Esther, chapters 1 and 2. So here's how the book of Esther begins. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa and in the third year of his reign, we think that's 483 BC, Xerxes gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full, circle this in your Bible, 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Queen Vashti, his wife, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Have you heard of him before, King Xerxes? If you kids play Assassin's Creed, you know about King Xerxes. If you've seen the, the gritty movie from a few years ago, 300, that's this King Xerxes. Real dude, I've seen some of his treasures at a museum in Chicago. And the book of Esther wants you to know that there ain't no party like a Xerxes party. 
because the Xerxes party don't stop for 180 days. I even left the details out. He goes wild. He invites all the military officials for the last week. In fact, it is open bar for the entire city. And people flood in. They sit on couches of silver and gold by marble pillars. And Xerxes is flexing his power and muscle. He rules 127 provinces from India to Africa. He is the man. And many scholars think that Xerxes is doing this because he needs to avenge the loss of his father. How many of you have ever run a a marathon or a half marathon before? Do you know the history of where the marathon comes from? It comes from Xerxes' dad. Xerxes' dad, Darius I, was the king of Persia. He had invaded the Greeks to expand his empire and he lost at the Battle of Marathon. And the person who knew about the victory ran 26 miles to report the victory. And because of the stupid distance, some of us have to run a very long distance to get that dumb little medal, right? So that was his dad and he lost and it brought kind of shame to the powerful Persian kingdom. And so Xerxes wants to change that. He's about to invade Greece again and so we think he throws this massive party for six months. All the military people get to come so they see just how strong and mighty the Persian empire is. Not to spoil it, You know the 300 movie? That's what happened to Xerxes. He gets thumped on land, he gets thumped even more at the sea, and he comes home with his tail between his legs. Well, in the process, he throws this big party, and if you're watching at home, I'm not sure if you know this, but sometimes when men drink too much alcohol, they do dumb things. And Xerxes does a dumb thing. Here's what happens. The book of Esther says, on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, aka buzzed, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Hey, you guys. Xerxes slurred, you got to see my hot wife. (laughs) Some Jewish scholars actually think the Hebrew of this verse means that uh, he wanted her to walk into the party wearing only her royal crown. For she was lovely to look at. And Queen Vashti, with courage and character, says, honey, uh uh-uh. Hard pass. And she keeps partying with her female friends which made the men freak out. King Xerxes is mighty Xerxes. He rules 127 provinces. But what happens if the word gets out that even though he rules continents from India to Africa, he cannot keep control of this one woman that he's married to? He's embarrassed, furious. And the men of his royal court start to panic. Here's what they think. If word gets out, that a woman can say no even to the king? What do you think our women are going to do? In in their chauvinism, they could hear already a million Persian wives saying to their husbands, listen, honey, King Xerxes doesn't get everything that he wants. And you ain't no Xerxes. (laughs) And so they come up with this, it's bad. The Bible records it, doesn't endorse it. A very, very sexist, sexist solution. They say to King Xerxes, Punish her. Make an example out of Vashti. 
kick her off the throne, rip the crown from her head, never let her eyes even see you again, and then publish a decree in every language of all 127 provinces that women must submit to their husbands, that men rule in their homes. Let Vashti be the example that gives us control today and forevermore. And Xerxes, because he's a bad man, agrees. Vashti gets the boot. All the women are told to sit down and be quiet. And that's the end of Esther chapter 1. Fast forward four years. When Esther chapter 2 begins, Xerxes has already tried to avenge his father in Greece. He's lost to the 300. And he's come back home with his tail between his legs. His mighty party of military power did not work. And he he's actually sees Vashti's empty throne And he gets all these feelings. The Bible doesn't say if he was angry, if he felt regret or embarrassment or shame, but his personal attendants notice that something's wrong with the king as he's looking at that old throne. And so they come up with an idea. And the idea, in fact, is the idea is so, so sexist that it makes all the other sexist ideas seem very, very not sexist. Here's what Esther chapter 2 says. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. How about this sentence? This advice appealed to the king. Shocker. And he followed it. Do you you hear what they're saying? Hey, King Xerxes, let's create a whole new branch of the government. You appoint commissioners and their only job will be to look for very, very attractive women. From India to Africa, every, every culture, dialect, tribe, we'll find all the most beautiful women the world has to offer. We'll bring them into the palace and we'll let them spend an entire year trying to go from beautiful to beautifuler. All access pass at the royal spa. And then, how about this, King Xerxes? One by one, every night, we will bring one of these women to your bedroom. She will enter. She'll leave in the morning before breakfast. And the one that pleases the king can become the new queen. Like I said, it's like The Bachelor, but not suitable for work. He doesn't have to date them. He doesn't have to love them. He doesn't even have to know them. They just have to sexually please him for one night. That's how you become the new queen of Persia. This advice appealed to the king. And right in the middle of that, and have you heard a more sexist, sinful pagan, perverted story right in the middle of that total train wreck of a time in history. Guess who steps onto the scene? Esther. Chapter 2 says this. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah who had been brought up because she had neither mother, father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who was in charge of the harem. 
She pleased him and won his favor. Esther not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So meet two descendants from old Abraham, two Jewish people, Mordecai and Esther. They're technically cousins, but she's an orphan and he's older, so he's kind of like a stepdad, a father figure to her. Everyone knows that Mordecai is Jewish, but not Esther. She's kept that a secret because Mordecai has told her it's it's probably not safe in this anti-Semitic climate for you to reveal your nationality and your identity. That's going to be important later in the story. And Esther gets chosen in this big beauty pageant to spend one night with the king. Which makes you wonder, why didn't she stop it? Actually, Bible readers and scholars and Christians have debated this for many years. Mordecai and Esther's behavior in this book makes you wonder, did they care all that much about God? Some of you know the story of Daniel in the lion's den or the three men in the fiery furnace. When, when these guys were in the exact same situation, in a pagan empire under a pagan king, they stood up and said, you can, you can feed me to the lions, you can throw me in the furnace, but I'm going to stand up for the God who saved my people and forgave my sins. But Esther? I mean, she, is she taken, trafficked? We, we don't know how willing she is in this process, but we do know she doesn't say anything. I mean, Esther and Mordecai don't pray about it. They don't call upon the name of God. They don't fall down in worship and ask for his wisdom and guidance. God doesn't show up. Does that tell us something about their faith? And, kind of fascinating, their very names, Esther and Mordecai, seem to be connected to pagan gods. The name Ishtar sounds like Esther, and Ishtar was a pagan goddess. The name Marduk sounds like Mordecai. He was a very popular pagan god. I mean, her real name was Hadassah, a Jewish Hebrew name. Why didn't she use it? Did she want to cover up who she was? Was she living like the people of the world? We have so many questions about who these people are, but here's what you need to know. In the middle, maybe of their own messy spiritual situation, in the middle of this messy pagan empire, God was up to something. Because Esther didn't just get picked to be part of the show. She got King Xerxes' single rose. Esther chapter 2 says, Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So Xerxes set a royal crown on Esther's head and made her queen instead of Vashti. We don't know exactly what she said or what she did during her one night with the king, but we do know that the orphan ended up becoming the queen. And I think you'd agree the story is disturbing. It's messy. It's sinful. It's evil. And yet, in the midst of that, you don't know this yet unless you know the rest of Esther, God was putting her in place for a purpose. God was using, while he was not condoning, but he was using even the sins of these sinful men to work out something behind the scenes for their good. It, it might have seemed just like crazy odds that this Jewish girl ends up sitting next to the king on a pagan throne. It, it may seem crazy that she just happened to be there at the right moment, as we're about to hear. Maybe God has put you here for such a time as this. But God put Esther in that place for a purpose. 
And then he did the same thing with Mordecai. Our second example today is much shorter, just one paragraph, but let me read it to you. End of Esther chapter 2 says, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Like they always say, never trust a guy named Big Thana. <laughs> like what, when I read this little verse in the Bible, I think, what are, what are the odds that this happens? It's like flipping a coin and it ends up heads 10 times in a row. What are the odds that Mordecai would just so happen to be sitting at the gate when these two guys make their conspiracy? Ancient gates of ancient kingdoms were big. What are the odds he's sitting on the right side of the gate to overhear their conspiracy? What are the odds that the conspirators conspire just loud enough that Mordecai can hear them? And what are the odds that when he hears them, the eavesdropper just so happens to be the cousin of the orphan who just became the queen? And what are the odds that the cousin would tell the queen, who would then tell the king, who would then tell the scribes to scribble down the note in the royal records? And what are the odds that that very entry, five years later, would be read to King Xerxes one night when he couldn't sleep and become the pivotal point of the whole story of the book? And the answer is, impossible. Unless, unless there's a God who puts people in a specific place for a specific purpose. The God who controls all things put Esther in place for a purpose. The same God who controls all things put Mordecai in place for a purpose. And the same God who does not change put you in place for a purpose too. I don't know what that purpose is. I don't know why you sometimes feel stuck in a boring place or or you're struggling in a very painful place. I don't know why God lets the specific hard things happen to you that have happened to you. But I do know this, that God puts people in place for a purpose. If you're caring for an aging grandparent or parent and you just, you're not getting as much done as you used to because it's so time intensive and mom, dad, grandma, and grandpa, they, they forget the things they say. They might even forget your name. You might think this is pointless. Mm-mm. God put you in that place for a purpose. And you might think you're just sitting in a nursing home or sitting in a cell and it's totally random. No, no, no. There is, I don't know it, you don't know it, but God put you in that place. You might think it's an accident that you are here on this Sunday. But there are no accidents and there are no coincidences. There is just providence and sovereignty. There is a God who knows everything, controls all things, and determines the very times and places where people should be. And what are the odds that you would be here today? Out of all the Sundays, all the churches, all the places you could be, all the weekends you could come or not come. What are the odds that you and I are sitting in this space together? But God puts people in place 
for a purpose. Before you get mad at God, before you question him, before you throw up your hands, before you walk away, believe what the book of Esther is teaching us, that God puts us in place for a purpose. There's a passage I want all of you to memorize as your homework for this week. My pastor made me memorize this as a kid, and I'm glad he did. It's just a one-verse summary, I think, of the whole book of Esther, this thrilling 10-chapter story distilled down into a single verse. Here's what it says, Romans 8, verse 28. It says, and we know, right? I got this up here in my head, in my heart. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's what I know. That my God doesn't work in some things or in the nice things or in the easy things. No, Paul, who himself spent time in prison, Paul, who was persecuted without reason, Paul, who would actually lose his life for Jesus, he knew this deep in his heart and it gave him so much joy and hope that in all things, God was working for the good. Sometimes he could see it. Sometimes he had no clue what it was. But he believed, and I want you to believe, in all things, God works for the good. So, I want you to repeat after me. Say, in all things, in all things, God works, God works for the good, for the good. One more time. In all things, God works for the good. All right, close your eyes. Say it all out with me. Ready? In all things, God works for the good. All right, if you, I'm going to call some of you up at 2.13 in the morning. I'm going to say, what's Romans 8 verse 28? And you're going to say, I'm calling a lawyer tomorrow. And I'm going to say, all right, but before you do, what's the verse? Because, I mean, you just need to know this. In, in all things, believe that. God is working for the good, for your good. Now, here's the deal. I'm not a prophet. I don't know, I won't claim to know, you know, why didn't God step in when you were a kid and those things were happening to you? Why, why, why did God let the marriage fall apart? Why, why did someone you love die too young? Why are you battling cancer? Why does your kid have special needs? Like, there's no specific answer in the Bible that I could relate to today. But there are three categories I want you to think about that maybe this is my purpose. I want you to think about protection. I want you to think about prayer. And I want you to think about people. Maybe you're going through this right now. Maybe you're in that stage where you feel stuck because of protection or prayer or people. Let's talk about protection. Maybe you're stuck in this like boring, not exciting place because God is trying to protect you from something that you cannot have handled. Maybe God knew if you would have stayed on like the interstate of success, you would have smashed into some temptation that would have messed you up bad. And so he, he put up the construction barriers and he took you on the detour. Now you're stuck just staring at the red lights and you think, oh, I wish I could be back there. Maybe God is protecting you. Some of you know this, when I was in second grade, uh, going to school up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, I prayed passionately almost every day for a girlfriend. And in second grade, I did not get a girlfriend. So I repeated the prayer in the third grade and the fourth and the fifth. And I graduated from grade school with a sum total of zero girlfriends. Middle school, though, is a fresh start, right? New me, new wardrobe, new school. 
So I kept praying, sixth grade, God, I'm, I'm even gonna suggest a couple of names for you to consider. <laughs> and I got through sixth grade without ever, ever holding a girl's hand, and then I got through seventh grade without ever kissing a girl, and then I got through eighth grade without ever going on a date with a girl, but then high school, right? High school's a different story, right? Boys get more interested in girls, girls get more interested in boys. This is my time, right? So I get to ninth grade, and there's no girlfriend, and then 10th grade, and there's no girlfriend, and then 11th grade and there's no girlfriend. And then I become one of those really inspiring, super cool dudes who plays tennis and soccer and has never held a girl's hand and never gone on a date, never kissed a single girl. (laughs) And it's funny looking back, right? I mean, I'm I'm happily married 19 years in. There's a happy ending to that story. But here's what I think about. I, I know from my own you know, personal struggle with pornography for a lot of years that resisting sexual temptation was not my strength. What would have happened if a spiritually less mature Mike had had a girlfriend? I mean, the woman that I first fell in love with, Kim, who became my wife, was, was so strong in her faith, with such good boundaries for the will of God, that, that just, we weren't going to cross that line as a couple. What if I was with someone that didn't have those boundaries? I mean, I don't want to be the dude. Did you know this? Uh, my senior prom, while everyone else was dancing with their girlfriends, I was watching Star Wars with my friends. <laughs> Super cool. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> right? Was God protecting me from something? Would I be here as a pastor? Would I have been with a girl, gotten her pregnant, gone down a different direction? I don't know. But I know it's very, very possible that God had me in that place for a purpose. He was protecting me from myself. And is it possible he's doing the same for you? You wish you had the job. You wish the cancer would just be gone. You wish you'd get back to life. You wish whatever. What if God, who sees it and just knows, and he's saying to you, no, I love you. I don't want that to happen to you. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm going to protect you. And so you can't hear my voice, but I'm saying no to this for your best interest. Protection. Maybe it's prayer. One of the most powerful things, according to the Bible, that you and I could ever do is pray. When we pray in Jesus' name, mountains move and God works miracles. But do you know, do you know the one thing that busy, successful, and happy people often don't find time to do? Pray. That's my struggle, right? You're just running, you got so much stuff, you're running to work, you're connecting with friends, you're playing sports, you're running the kids to 7,000 different sports. It's not that you don't love prayer, just that, man, when you get to bed at night, your eyes are closing before your head even hits the pillow. What, what if God sometimes put us in places, slower, less successful places, so we would have time and space to pray? What if the most good happens in the world, not because of movers and shakers and rich and powerful people, but people who are stuck in a nursing home or on disability at home, struggling with a job with way more time than the rest of us, and they take that time, they leverage that time to pray for the church in Jesus' name. What if God is clearing out your schedule for the purpose of prayer? I don't know, but I do know that God puts people in place for a purpose. Or, my last suggestion, what if he puts you in that place for a person? 
Maybe you're memorizing the historical facts in the required class. What's the point of this? Maybe the point of this isn't this. Maybe the point of this is him. The guy who's sitting next to you who got burned by the church and he thinks it's just all about hypocrisy and money and whatever. What if God like literally had your seat assigned next to his so you could break his stereotype that Christians are just super judgy people who think they're earning their way to heaven because they're so much better than everyone else? What if God like puts us in hospital beds, puts us in jail cells? What if God puts us in families and neighborhoods, workplaces, volunteering with people that we don't love, we might not even like, but he put us there for a purpose, to love them and let our light shine in front of them, to, to pray for them, know them, be there for them, listen to them. What if the point isn't the degree or the salary? What if it's just literally that one person? I don't know. Does God have you there for protection, for a prayer, for a person? I do know this. You are put in place for a purpose because in all things, God works for the good. So I want to leave you today with my favorite piece of art. Some of you have seen this picture that hangs in the church office right here at the core. Uh, it's a picture by an amazing Christian artist. It's based in part by Romans 8, verse 28. And it is, to me, the most beautiful reminder that whatever happens to me as a child of God, it always has a great purpose from God. I'll show you on the screen. There's Jesus. There's you. And there's the purpose. And here at the center of the painting is Jesus, the glorious Son of God. His hands are pierced because he came into this world with a purpose, to forgive you of your sins, to make you right with God, to conquer death and erase all those times you doubted God, were embarrassed by God or frustrated with God. There is Jesus, our King and our Savior, and there's us. There's us with some blood on our cheeks because life has cut us, scratched us, wounded us. But the artist who made this picture wanted you to know about all of this and then about this. Over here are hundreds, maybe thousands of black-tipped arrows. All the pain that didn't have a purpose. All the stuff the devil wanted to do to you, to just kill you and destroy you and rip you away from Jesus. All the stuff that made no sense and had zero reason. And Jesus, with his almighty, sovereign power, he didn't let a single bit of that come into your life. But he did let this come in. An arrow did get through that Jesus allowed with his power. Except instead of being black and pointless and just painful, he sanctified it. He made it different. He used that situation, maybe not in the moment that you could see it, but for something holy and wonderful. Something that looking back with 2020 vision from heaven, you will praise God for allowing it into your life. You maybe once have chosen it, but I promise you one day you will not change it. And here's my favorite part. As the arrow brushes our cheek, where are our eyes fixed? On Jesus. When we wonder, God, have you forgotten about me? Do you, do you love me? Is there a point to this? We 
fix our eyes on Jesus. And we know that if God himself gave his one and only son, when we were nothing to him, just enemies to him, how could he not be using this for the good of his people? If God loves us and forgives us more than we will ever understand, how could he not let this cancer, this struggle, this season be for something so, so good? And so we might not get it. We don't understand it. We can't always explain it. But we know this deep in our hearts that in all things, God works for the good. And if you believe that, like I believe that, like the Apostle Paul believed that, would you join your voice with me and say, Mm. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Oh God, it's so beautiful to know you're not just a compassionate but a weak God. Uh, You are a God with a huge heart and you are a God with mighty power. You're not just sad for those of us who've struggled. You're not just a, a good human counselor or a best friend. You're the God who can do something about it and even flip it for a greater good. You did that, Father, with the betrayal of Judas and the the cowardice of the Pharisees. You used that for the forgiveness of our sins when Jesus ended up on the cross. And you're doing the same thing today. I'm asking you to send your Holy Spirit to give us faith to believe the things that we have just heard. And the devil would love, love to use our pain to pull us away from you, to make us give up on church and close our Bibles and stop praying. He would love to use that divorce, that tragedy, that confusion, so that we had no more faith left in our life. God, lead us not into that temptation, but instead deliver us from that evil so that we believe even now, even this, even me, I'm put in place for a purpose. God, we pray for big, great faith like that that trusts you, that believes you're a God who can always be trusted because you're the God who gave us your first and your very best, the God who gave us Jesus. We pray all these things with confidence and hope and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.